yes, it's loathing for you like you loathe a spider. So this is fear. If I don't surrender to God, he's going to drop me into the pit of hell where I'm going to burn forever. Right? Or my neighbors won't like me or something like that. Okay. <laughs> and then after that is out of desire. You know, dear Lord, give me money. Dear Lord, clear, you know, cure my mother. Make my wife speak nicely to me. Give me an A on the test. And sometimes I see this even in the Gurukula. You know, the kid turns in their paper and they're saying, Krishna, Krishna, give me an A. Krishna, give me an A. Krishna, Krishna, please give me an A. And I say, it doesn't work like that. You have to do the work, you know. It's not like you just throw something on the paper and you pray to Krishna to give you an A. So I'm going, you know. Actually, Prabhupada says that that kind of worship, often these people worship the demigods. He says it's in chapter 7 of the Bhagavad Gita that that is a kind of lust. You're going to the demigods to get something that's not deserved, that Krishna didn't give you. And you're going to Krishna like that too. You know, something you didn't deserve. Something like, you know, you go to your mother and you say, Mommy, can I have a lollipop? And she says, only if you clean your room. And you don't clean your room. And then, you know, you go to your daddy and you say, Daddy, can I have a lollipop? Well, what does your mommy say? Well, she said I could have a lollipop. And trying to, to get around your requirement. So Krishna hasn't given you something, but you know, you're trying to beg him or flatter him. Lord, you're so beautiful. You're so wonderful. Please give me my lollipop. You know? So that doesn't, that's a, a little bit higher than fear. And then above that is duty. That one is feeling some gratitude. Bhaktisananda Saraswati wrote an extensive article about the difference between love and gratitude, worshiping God in gratitude and worshiping God in love. And when I first read it, I thought, what is wrong with gratitude? But it's gratitude in the sense that I'm the enjoyer and God's facilitating my enjoyment. You know, that's nice. That's higher than just simply going to God, give me this, give me this, give me this. And it's higher than, why I worship God or I'm going to hell. But it's still not the highest level of pure devotion. I, my mother had me uh, introduced to her rabbi once and she was saying, oh, he gives such wonderful classes. I want you to hear one of his classes. And she played this tape for me of his class. And his conclusion was, he's a very nice man. He's, he's actually, uh, he's had a lot of persona. Very nice man. But in his class he was saying that one's prayer should be simply, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That 24 hours a day we should just be saying basically thank you. you know, thank you for letting me walk. Thank you for allowing me to breathe. Thank you for allowing me to, to digest my food. So this is duty. Now that's also the, I mean, Prabhupada talks about when Krishna says, I am the light of the sun and the moon. I am the light of the moon that provides juice for the vegetables. I am the fire of digestion. I am knowledge, remembrance, and forgetfulness. I'm pretty sure it's in the purport to that verse. Sarvashya Pretty sure it's in that purport. I might be wrong. When he says that Krishna is providing everything, he's providing the knowledge of the Vedas to get us out of this material world, in this material world, he's our fire of digestion, he's giving the taste to the vegetables, he says, therefore, God is all good, God is all merciful. So to have some gratitude, I mean, that's at least human, isn't it? Somebody's giving you so many things and you're not even grateful. You see this with children, all the, little children all the time. I saw this the other day with my grandson. So my, my daughter-in-law had these, he had these clothes that he had ruined. And instead of throwing them out, 
she had bought some snaps to repair them and she was there I was cooking that day and while I was cooking dinner so she was repairing these snaps and she was having to take a few minutes with each snap and finally she fixed several pairs of pants and she hands them to her son here John here's your pants I fixed them for you well uh, you're supposed to say thank you uh, thanks Martha there is no conception like that. He's just five years old, and he has to be told you're supposed to say thank you. Right? To him, mommy's just supposed to give me my clothes. That she's required to. So saying thank you to Krishna, at least we're not thinking, well, you know, Krishna's obligated. I deserve to have everything. But even that's not in the mood of love. It's in the mood of taking and then above that is just the mood of love. Krishna, you give me, you don't give me. You handle me roughly by your embrace. You make me broken hearted. You're my Lord unconditionally. This is very difficult. Prabhupada talks about how in World War II, the German ladies were going to church. Please, God, bring back my son, bring back my husband, bring back my father. And they didn't come back, and so the ladies became atheists. Right? So many times there's books and articles inspiring stories of faith. And what are all these stories? You know, my car broke down on the side of the road and I didn't have the right screw to fix the engine. And I said, Lord, help me. And then this truck rolled by. This is a true story, actually. And then this truck rolled by and out of this truck, this object bounced out of the truck and I looked and it was a screw. I picked it up and it was the right size and it fit in my car. And I fixed my car. Now, so when, when Krishna gives them what they want, oh, then I, then I believe. Then I'm grateful. Then I have faith. And I remember we got a story like this submitted to Back to Godhead. And uh, I think it was Vishakha where one of the editors commented and said, why can't we have a story where nobody came to help them and still they have faith? You know, their car broke down and they were there for 50 hours without any help. <laughs> they had to walk 20 miles to the gas station. And still they had faith. That is a higher level. One has love. A friend of mine who lives in a temple ashram has lived in a temple ashram for 12 years. And those of you who live in the temple ashrams, you're all very wealthy, right? right? You have a lot of money. Right? Lots of months. Right. So she uh, she had a sick mother in another country and she had been saving money somehow or other over a period of a long time. She had saved $100. And she'd given it to the keeping of another devotee and then the town president had asked this other devotee, can you lend me some money? So this devotee had lent her $100 to the temple president. That's a very nice temple president, but he's very bad about paying back loans. Very nice man. He's a very nice man. Very good man, but not very good about paying back loans. So she came to me all crying and upset. She said, you know, I saved this $100 over so many months. My mother is sick in a nursing home. I want to send it to my mother. And the town president's borrowed this money, and it's been two months, and he hasn't paid it back. Now I'm leaving. What a cheater. I said to her, you went to India one time, right? She said, yeah. I said, did you take any money with you when you went in here? Yeah. I said, well, where did you get the money from? Where did it come from? She said, oh, people just started giving it to me. They just came to me and said, I heard you're finally going to India for the first time. You know, maybe you'd like to buy something. I said, oh, how much did you end up taking with you? She said, oh, $600. I said, really, where did that money come from? 
That's from Krishna. And then her whole face kind of changed. It was like somebody turned on a light bulb inside her head or something. And she said, oh, I guess Krishna gave me $600 and now Krishna just took $100. He ended up giving her back the $100 that afternoon. But he said, yeah, both things are Krishna. So that is the platform of love. Not just, oh, people give me $600 to go to India. I know that really came from Krishna. Thank you, Krishna. Somebody borrows $100 and doesn't give it back. Where's Krishna? As Krishna, I love you. You want to make me live in the street and eat out of garbage cans? I love you. You want to put me in a palace and I have opulent food to eat? I love you. It doesn't matter. Of course, the height of this was seen in Kolavecha Sridhar. Kolavecha Sridhar was so poor. He lived in this little hut. He couldn't even afford to repair it. He was always skinny. And he had a grove of banana trees, and he would pick the leaves, and he, those of you who've been to India, he would fashion the leaves into little cups and plates. So the biodegradable version of disposable, not styrofoam plastic, you know, but just banana leaves. <laughs> First I remember judging that Puri when I got a plate like that, and I said, now where do I throw away my garbage? And they said, you just throw it on the street. And I was very... I don't throw garbage on the street. But there was no garbage can. I didn't have any choice unless I wanted to carry it around with me all day. Threw it on the street and immediately some cow ate it. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> Now I understand what the system is. So he was making these little cups. And Lord Chaitanya, who's the incarnation of Krishna, he would come as a young boy and he would torment Kolavita Shudha. He would say, how much are your cups? You know, two pies. Two pies? That's just two pies. That's highway robbery. Give it to me free. And he would go on and on like that, harassing him. Well, then one time, Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he showed that he is the supreme personality of Godhead. He manifested he was Vishnu. Normally he acted as a devotee of himself, but he manifested he was Vishnu and he was asking all the devotees, ask for a benediction, ask for a benediction. So devotees were asking for different things, like, please help my wife be Krishna conscious, things like that. And finally he says, call for Sridhar. And the devotees in general, Sridhar, who's Sridhar? The banana leaf seller. So they called for him, they brought him in. He said, who wants to see me? The Lord himself wants to see you. The Lord himself wants to see me? What's this? So he comes in and he sees Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who is Vishnu in all of his opulence. And the Lord says, what do you want? He says, I don't want anything. The poverty he was living in is probably difficult for any of us to imagine. He had nothing. Absolutely nothing. His clothes were just patches sewn together. He said, I want nothing. And the Lord said, I give you a whole universe to rule. What do I do with it? He said, I'll give you the eight mystic perfections. You can control others' minds and you can grab something from a distant place and create a planet and become smaller than the smallest and bigger than the biggest. He said, I don't want that. What would I do with that? I mean, most of us, you know, wow, that's far out. Sure, I'll take that. I love to fly in the sky and grab avocados. Wow, create a whole planet and control a universe? Sure. You know. 
He said, no, I don't want that. And Lord Chaitanya said, well, what do you want? He said, I don't want anything. And he insisted. He said, you know, you've got to take something. He said, okay, if you insist. He said, please, life after life, I want you to come to my banana leaf stall and tease me about the price of my banana leaf. <laughs> so that's love. That's love. That's not fear. It's not desire. It's not duty. It's just love. And yet another way we can understand advancement is through degrees of faith. Now each of these ways of understanding advancement, they're all describing basically the same phenomena. They're just describing it in different language and from a little different angle. Like you could describe the stages of childhood in several different ways and you could have different cutoff points. You could say, well, there's a stage from birth to six months, or you could say birth to two years. You could demarcate it a little differently and identify the stages differently. So the stage of understanding by faith is usually categorized as a neophyte, the middle devotee, and the advanced devotee. And the beginning devotee, their faith is very soft. So if somebody comes up to them and says, well, I don't really know about that Krishna consciousness. I mean, I met one of your devotees and... They were a liar and a, cheat and a cheat and a thief and they were really a low-grade person. So I don't think this Krishna consciousness works. And then the person starts thinking, well, yeah, maybe it does. You know, or look, you've been chanting Hare Krishna for so long and let's look at you. You don't have any money. You don't have any position in society. What are you doing this for? What are you getting out of it? And the person starts thinking, yeah, you know, I've been chanting Hare Krishna for 10 years and all I have is a little 5 by 10 foot room. I just have to work hard all day. I guess they're right. You know, they start wondering. Every, every little thing that happens, and they, they start wondering. You know, their car breaks down, and the screw doesn't fall out of a truck that goes by, and then they think, you know, wow, didn't happen to me. I guess there's no God. You know, I guess he's just there for that Baptist guy, you know. <laughs> Maybe I should become a Baptist. Have the screws fall out of the truck for me. So their faith is very pliable. And then the middle devotee, their faith is very strong. Whatever happens, their kid gets hit by a truck, they lose all their money, they get burned in the kitchen and they're hideous, and they still they have faith. Someone comes and says, look what I read here in the books. Look, this looks like a contradiction. Here it says nobody ever falls from Vaikuntha, and here it says we did fall from Vaikuntha. Here it says Prajumna is a Jiva, and here it says Prajumna is Vishnu. And they say, well, you know, maybe I can't explain it, but I know there's an explanation. The neophyte says, really? Oh, God, I guess there's a problem here. And the middle devotee says, well, you know, there's some way to understand this. Maybe I don't know it. Maybe I can't explain it to you, but I know there's a way to understand it. I just have to find the right person to explain it. I just have to find out how to understand it. And the person on the advanced level of faith, they have complete faith their mother, their father, their brother, their sister, their uncle, their aunt, their children all die. They lose all their money. They're let out in the street. The town president cheats them and runs off with some lady and still they have faith. <laughs> you don't think that's what's going to happen? And they're able to convince others. They're able to go to other people and say, you know, the only way to become happy is Krishna consciousness. And they can resolve other people's doubts. 
their own doubts are resolved and they can resolve others' doubts and their faith is fixed. No matter what, still they say what? You're always my worshipful Lord unconditionally. Doesn't matter. We don't find... Maharaj Yudhisthira didn't say to Krishna, Krishna, why did you let Shakuni and Duryodhana cheat me? Where were you? Jopati didn't say to Krishna, my dear Lord, why did you let Dushashana pull me into the arena? Why didn't you prevent that from happening? He shouldn't say that. He didn't say, you know, well, what kind of God are you? <laughs> why should I be devoted to you? In fact, the example that Arjuna gives is that of Subhadra, who's the sister of the Lord. Subhadra is the wife of Arjuna. And they had one child, Abhimanyu. So a mother is very attached to her child, especially if there's only one child. And if you were only children, so your mother is probably very attached to you. Probably wants you to be a big doctor or lawyer or something. So she was very attached to Abhimanyu. And then Abhimanyu had to grow up to a large extent without his father. His father went into exile because of the gambling match. And Abhimanyu was a great fighter. And in the battle of Kurukshetra, by trickery, he was killed. And he was killed against the warrior codes at that time. And he was seven against one. Supposed to be one on one. It's a, it's a long story. But anyway, he was killed by trickery. And how, how devastated Subhadra must have felt. I mean, Arjuna was certainly also very devastated. Arjuna was so angry that he made it down. And it's, a, it's a long story. But anyway, Subhadra, it said that her devotion for Krishna did not change color, Arjuna says. He says, although her son Abhimanyu was killed practically in your presence. Of course, actually, Krishna and Arjuna were out of that area at that time. But still... She didn't say, Krishna, why didn't you protect my son, your own nephew, for whom you had so much personal affection? I reject you. Where are you? No. Her devotion was fixed. So that is the topmost devotee. He loves under all circumstances. We have some idea of that in this world, right? In the marriage vows, people say for better or for worse. Everyone hopes the worst doesn't happen. Everyone's counting that it's going to be, you know, health and wealth and better. Right? Richer, poorer, sickness and health, better and worse. Sometimes, you know, two days after the wedding, there's a car accident and one of the persons is crippled for life and disfigured. And I know one lady, a week before the wedding, she was in a fire and burned all over her body. She became very ugly and disfigured and the guy said, forget you. So material world is often like that. But with Krishna, real love, real faith is whatever you do to me, Lord, I know is good. Whatever is happening to me, that is good. That you are all good, that you are my friend. And one who thinks like this, his going back to home, back to God, it is guaranteed. One who takes, when there's suffering, ah, this is Krishna's mercy, he becomes more devoted. Oh, it's easy to become more devoted when Krishna gives you, you know, a thousand pounds, right? And good health, and that's easy. Oh, yes, I love you. But what is that? A fair weather friend. You say that here in England? Fair weather friend? It's easy to find fair weather. Isn't it? That's easy. How do you know a real friend in adversity? 
And that's how Krishna knows whether or not we're his real friends. When we're in adversity, right, will we still fight for him? Will we still love him? Will we still be devoted to him? Do we just want the bliss or are we willing to go into the front line of battle for him? And that is faith. And people do it for material masters, right? They'll be a spy for their country. It's not glamorous like the movies, you know, being a spy. It's just dangerous. Or even just to go off into war and you're going to have your leg blown off or something like that. But you're willing to do it. Why? Out of devotion to your country. So if people can have that much devotion to a country, and I don't, there's no country worthy of that kind of devotion, is it? Why not have that for Krishna? So that is real faith. And why do we have faith? Well, without faith, you can't give up your material attachments. It's not possible. We are Nandamaya Vyasat. We're pleasure-seeking by nature. And we want, we are eternal beings. We're not subject to birth and death. We're eternal. Our right, our natural position is to feel very secure. Krishna says the soul can't be burnt by any fire. It can't be harmed by any weapon. That's who we really are. Right now, wait, there's nothing that can hurt us. And we're complete. Not only is Krishna complete, Om Purnama Da Purnamidam Purnam We are also complete. We are actually full of love for Krishna. We have full eternality. Nothing can hurt us. Nobody can hurt us. We have full eternity, knowledge, and bliss right now. We have everything that we need. And so, naturally, in this world of illusion, illusion means that I think I don't have what I need. I identify with something I am not. And therefore, I am feeling an illusion of scarcity. Exactly like some rich person's watching a movie about someone who loses their money and they become frightened. Oh, when is the hero going to get his money back? Because he's identifying with the character. You're sitting safely in the movie theater and the character's dangling from the helicopter... And your heart is being, you know, you're thinking you're dangling from the helicopter. So in this world, we're looking for the security that, and the happiness and the knowledge that we really already have. We're, we're imagining that we don't have it and we're looking for it. But without that faith that we actually already have it in Krishna, we'll look for it elsewhere. It's our natural right. You can't just say, well, I, I'll just accept that I won't be happy. I'll just accept that I'm going to be insecure. You can't actually live like that. Just like people have this, uh, what's it called, post-traumatic stress disorder. This happens especially to soldiers or someone who experiences some great trauma. You know, they'll be in a place where there's just death everywhere. People who live through some catastrophe, an earthquake or some attack or something, and they get traumatized. Oh my God, I could die at any moment. And they can't cope, isn't it? They have to get some kind of therapy. Now really, that's the situation for all of us, all the time. But if we were to face it, if we were really fully to face the illusion of this world, we'd go out, we'd go insane. If we were to be aware, fully aware, we'd go crazy. Unless we had that security and faith in Krishna. Unless we knew, I'm not the body, I'm the soul. 
then what does it matter that the material world's insecure? I don't have anything to do with it. I have nothing to do with me. Who cares? You know, there's quicksand down there, but I'm walking on a bridge, and I can understand that there's quicksand down there. It's not a problem. So without faith in Krishna, we're going to look for an illusion of security in this world. We're not going to be able to get out of the illusion. It's just not possible. We have to put our faith somewhere. We have to look for security and knowledge and bliss somewhere. We, we cannot remain just say, well, I'm going to see the world the way it is without Krishna. You can't do it. You go nuts. Or you'll immediately try to cover it up with something. People are constantly trying to cover up their consciousness with something, right? Some drug, drinking, gambling, movie, something. To forget the way the world is like. It's too painful. So spiritual life is not possible without some faith. I can't do it. No matter how much I'm suffering in the material world, I'll stick to that rather than nothing. I've got to have some faith, some belief that Krishna is going to take care of us. Well, what is that faith? Many, people, many times people think that faith is just some kind of blind adherence to dogma because it's what my mommy and daddy told me. Or it's written in some book somewhere and I just have to accept it as being true and that's it. A faith doesn't mean that as I started out by talking about ice skating, faith is based on experience. Krishna says, Raja Vidya, Raja Guyam, Pavitram Ida Muttamam, Pratyaksha Agamandaryam, Susukam Kartamaviyam. Pratyaksha means what we experience, direct experience. Like I experience that this exists right here and it's hard and I experience that this makes a noise. I have that experience. It's not that I just believe that this makes a noise. I hear it. I experience it directly. It's not a question of just, yes, I believe. Right? It's experience. So this real knowledge is something that should be experienced. And if you're not experiencing it, you're doing something wrong. It shouldn't be just something theoretical. It should be something tangible. Tangible means you can touch it. In fact, Krishna uses the word Brahman Sparsha. In the fifth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks about uh, Sparsha Ja, what is born from touch. And he says that the wise, they reject this enjoyment, this boga, from some Sparsha Ja that's born of touch because they know that it, anything that's born of touch, touch doesn't just mean the skin. We are touching, the light is touching our eyes, all of our knowledge acquiring senses the light is touching our retina the sound is touching our eardrum the smell is touching our nostrils right the food is touching our tongue there's some contact between the senses and their objects and the yogi rejects all enjoyment that comes from the contact the touch of the senses with their objects because why such has a beginning and end and it leads to pain it says dukkha yoni yoni means birth or womb sometimes refers to woman this is the, this samsparsha ja, boga, this enjoyment from, that's born of touch, it is actually the mother of all suffering. But what does he get instead? Brahma samsparsha, he's touching Brahma, he's touching God. Literally touching God. That means it's a direct experience. So faith is a direct experience. As much as one directly experiences smelling a flower, or tasting a candy, or seeing the sky, one should be experiencing Krishna. And that faith should come from direct experience. 
Ravindra's Rupabhu talks about when he first started chanting Hare Krishna, it frightened him and he stopped chanting because he immediately lost all interest in everything else. And he didn't know what he was chanting. He didn't know what the mantra was. And he thought, wow, I'm fooling with something really powerful here. I don't know what it is. I don't think I'll do it anymore until I find out what it is. He didn't want to be with his friends anymore. You know, he didn't want to go to the movies. He didn't want to eat what he was eating. And we find that, right? You start chanting Hare Krishna and all of a sudden you think, why am I working so hard just for money? Why am I working for prestige? Who cares about all these things? I remember when, when I first started chanting, I remember being in a restaurant with my friend and there was uh, some other people in the booth next to us talking. And I said, everything they're talking about is just stupid. It's just wasted time and foolish. And then I said, you know, everything we've been talking about is just as bad. <laughs> and you, you start understanding that. Right? That I'm just a fool, that everything I'm doing is worthless. And you start perceiving the world quite differently. You start noticing, wow, people are just in anxiety. Everybody's full of fear and anxiety. Everybody's being conditioned by the modes of nature. Everything everybody's doing is just to try to cover up the fear of death and try to impress others and be the big enjoyer. I, what I felt like is as if I didn't know that my eyes weren't working properly and all of a sudden I put on a pair of glasses and then I realized that all my life I hadn't been able to see. It's a very startling experience. And that continues as you go on chanting, as you go on reading. Then more and more things come to you. Wow. One should directly be experiencing them. And that is faith. Faith is something that comes from direct touch with Krishna, from direct experience. It isn't just, I believe because I'm supposed to believe. And one day when I die, I'll hopefully find out that it's all true. <laughs> and if I don't, if I get there and the Baptist tells me that i got to go to hell, oh well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sorry, you had the wrong religion. <laughs> just hoping, like I picked one out of the hat, you know. I'm hoping I picked the right one. What happens to people who take up blind faith, it, it can't really work. And people who take up blind faith tend to be that person in the mode of ignorance, the mode of ignorance worshiper. They take their scriptures literally in some kind of a strange way. Right? Or they find they can't do that. So they take what one gentleman called this uh, selective literalism. They take as literal those parts of the scriptures that they can, the rest they interpret. And then they make a show, yes, I follow fundamentally, you know, I follow everything. But it's actually they don't. Of course, there's many stories about blind faith. Maybe you've heard some of them. Did I tell you the one about the guru on the horse? No? Okay, we'll tell you that one. There's a lot of them. I'll tell you this one. So there was one guru riding on a horse, and the disciple was walking next to him. So as they're walking along, they were, they were traveling and camping out at different places they were traveling. As they were traveling, some of the pots and pans that had been tied to the horse fell off and they fell into some soft grass, didn't make any noise, and the guru didn't notice them. And they got to their destination that night and he says to his disciple, well, can you cook? And the disciple said, well, I can't cook. Well, why not? Because the pots and pans fell off the horse during the day. He said, well, why didn't you pick them up? He said, because you never told me to pick them up. Guru says, listen, if there's anything that falls off the horse, 
you have to pick it up. Yes, Guruji. Okay, so the next day they're going, and the horse passes manure. So the disciple goes and picks it up, brings it to the guru, and he goes, what are you doing? I don't like this manure. The disciple says, but you told me anything that falls off the horse, I'm supposed to pick up, and it fell off the horse. He says, okay, look, I'll tell you what, I'll make a list. Anything on this list that falls off the horse, you pick up. If it's not on the list, you don't pick it up. All right. So the groom made a list, gives it to his disciple. So the next day they're traveling, and there was a low branch, and it knocked the guru off the horse. <laughs> so the disciple looks at his list, left him at the side of the road. So that's blind faith. And Prabhupada says, blind following is condemned. Right. Or sometimes blind following means, oh, this person, blind following also, that's like what people do for advertising. I teach my high school students principles of logic, and one thing we teach them is how to avoid false advertising. So one kind of false advertising is called bandwagon. Everybody's doing it, so it must be good. Right? We're all afraid to be different from the crowd. You may know there's been some psychological experiments done where everybody in the room agrees to give the wrong answer. You've heard of these kind of experiments? They'll put up lines, and so they'll ask everybody which lines are the same length, and everybody in the room will give the wrong answer. They'll say, well, line A and C are the same length, whereas actually C is much shorter. And the one person who's not in on it, they'll say, well, which lines are the same length? And they're thinking, there must be something wrong with me. It looks like A and B are the same, but everybody else said A and C. Uh, uh, a and C, sir. <laughs> and uh, pretty much every time, the person will go along with the crowd. <laughs> and this one person told me a story of how he was at a, a conference and in, in the middle of the conference, the seminar leader called for a break and said, we have some fruit and some refreshments here if anybody would like some. Everybody just sits stay sitting down. And so the seminar leader looked at the first person, would, would you like some? No, it's okay. The next person, would you like some? We have all these fruit and there's refreshments here. Would you? No, 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 it's okay. Went around the whole table and said, no, no, no. The person who was telling me this was sitting at the end of the table, and when the seminar leader got to him, he said, you know what, I think I would like some refreshments. And he got up and everybody else got. So if one is thinking, well, this guru has 10,000 disciples, they must be good. So that is blind faith. Yeah. Everybody else is doing this, it must be good. Nobody's doing this, it must be bad. You know, following just for some advertising kind of propaganda. Real faith comes from knowledge and real faith comes from experience. Real faith is based on not only the scripture, but it's based on logic and reason and experience. Real faith is something solid in the heart that you can count on that works for you. And it's not unreasonable. I had someone was talking to me about, you know, I want to have complete trust in all of the devotees, but you cannot expect another devotee to be like God. And people are thinking like this. Sometimes even people get disappointed in their spiritual master because they're thinking that their spiritual master is like God. So this is another kind of blind faith. 
Like what does Krishna say? He said, I spoke this knowledge to the sun god, Vivaswan. Millions of years ago. And then Arjuna says, uh, how did you do that? It's like if I were to tell all of you, yes, I also gave this class to George Washington and Napoleon. And <laughs> so, yeah, you'd say, uh, excuse me, when were you born? And you look rather young for your age, you know. So Arjuna says to Krishna, wait a minute, I know when you were born. And then Krishna says, hey, well, you were there with me, Arjuna. You just don't remember. So there's a difference between even a great soul like Arjuna and Krishna. And there's another, uh, um, in the Bhagavatam, there's a story of Ashvatthama, how Ashvatthama killed all of Draupadi's sons. And Ashvatthama and uh, Krishna and Arjuna, rather, they caught Ashvatthama and they bound him up and they were bringing him back to the camp. And it's explained they were both angry. Both Arjuna and Krishna were angry. But Arjuna's eyes are described as like being red-hot balls of copper. And Krishna's eyes are described as being like lotus flowers. And Prabhupada says there's a difference between the anger of God and the anger of the living entity, even a liberated living entity like Arjuna. That even when Krishna is very angry, his eyes are still like lotus flowers. So sometimes blind faith is thinking that the guru is going to be God. The guru is going to be all-knowing and all-powerful. They're going to know everything that's in my heart. They're never going to make an ordinary mistake. Like Prabhupada one time instead of saying uh, New Vrindavan was in West Virginia, he said like West Vrindavan or New Virginia or something like that. So that's also a kind of blind faith. And then when the person isn't God, because no one is God, but God, so then one becomes disappointed. Oh, I thought Mahabuti Prabhu was God. Now I'm going to leave. Why be a devotee anymore? I found out he's not God. Or I found out this other devotee in the temple, they still have envy in their heart. They did something to me and I could see it was based on envy. Let me go. <laughs> so, no, they're, most of us are fellow travelers. <laughs> so this is also blind faith. If we think that everybody, you know, all of the freshmen are graduates, so that's not reasonable. When you join the freshman class, most of the other people in your class are also freshmen. <laughs> And some of them, of course, are going to drop out of school. But uh, that's blind. The, the freshmen and the professors are not on the same level. And one cannot be thinking like that. So how do we develop faith? Well, there's many ways of developing faith. One way, of course, is to live the philosophy and see what happens. I mean, you do this in science, right? There's this experiment, and other people have done it, and they've gotten this result, and so you do it and you get the result. Right? You can't say, well, I'm going to believe it without doing the experiment. I, you know, I want you to prove it to me without doing the experiment. How is that? If you want to see it for yourself, you have to do the experiment yourself. And there's a formula, and Krishna says several times, many people in the past, they've engaged in this process and they've achieved perfection. This is the process. You do this, you do this, you do this. This will be the result. And if you don't get that result, then you're doing something wrong. Like there's some experiments that they're very, very careful exactly what the temperature has to be, right? Exactly the mix of chemicals. Sadhaputavu talks about one colleague in, in school who's doing some scientific experiments. He had to do it in the middle of the night 
because when there was traffic on the road, it would vibrate the building and the experiment wouldn't turn out right. So also with bhakti yoga, with Krishna consciousness, everything has to be just right. If you're doing something wrong, then things won't turn out quite right. But one way one gets faith is to do it, to experience it. And you'll find that if you do things properly, you are getting free from lust, anger, envy, greed, and illusion. You are starting to experience how Krishna is in your life. You are becoming detached from the material world. You are getting a sense of deep inner happiness and peace and solidity, a sense of real security and stability in your life. And the other way of developing faith is by preaching to others. Now, this is a very dramatic way of developing faith. In our school, we have mixed ages of children, and often we have an older student help out with a younger student. The, the sophisticated name for that in educational circles is cross-age tutoring. Now, what you discover when you do this, especially if the child who's teaching is not too much more advanced than the child who is taught, is that the person who learns the most is a child who is teaching. So if you have the seven-year-old teach the six-year-old how to spell something, the seven-year-old learns more than the six-year-old. If you've ever taught anybody anything, you find that you have to understand something much better in order to explain it to others then when you're doing it yourself, when you do it yourself, you may not even be aware of how you're doing it. You just do it. But when you're teaching it, you have to become, and I should have had a board for this. Anyway, you have to become conscious of the steps. Now, those of us, most of us anyway, we're probably doing math pro problems mostly in our head. We don't think about the steps anymore. But if I was to teach somebody, I have to think, now, how do I do that? How do I get that answer? How does it work? We have to be prepared to answer their questions. That means we have to really examine our own understanding. And you find that when you teach something, you often understand it much, much better than before you taught it. This especially happens if you're trying to teach something and the other person doesn't understand it the first three or four ways that you explain it you really have to struggle. Of course, some people don't do this. They just keep trying to explain it the same way louder. <laughs> but, you know, that's like, we sometimes get these uh, Indian devotional movies. They're in Hindi with English subtitles. So one time, I, my daughter is now learning Hindi. So she has some movies that are just in Hindi. You know, she has one about Krishna. It's all just Hindi. So I was borrowing one of them and I put it in the machine and I thought, i got to turn up the volume. <laughs> I don't understand this. Oh yeah, it's Hindi. It doesn't matter how loud you turn up the volume. But sometimes, you know, we're thinking, if I just keep explaining it the same way. But if you want to be effective, if a person doesn't understand something one way, then you have to explain it another way. Right? And sometimes that doesn't work. <sighs> now what do I do? And you have to think of another way to explain it. Sometimes you may have to think of five or six or seven different ways to explain it. Well, what happens then? You're thinking of more ways to understand it yourself. You're thinking of ways to apply it and understand it that you wouldn't have thought of if you hadn't taught it. Another really amazing thing happens, just like that lady I was telling you about who had 
lent her $100 to the temple president. So I was telling her things that I myself was working on, that everything Krishna does is good, that we should be forgiving of other people. And as I was telling her these things, as I said, it looked like a light bulb went on inside her head. And literally, her, her whole face just started glowing. It looked as if previously she had a cloud covering her face, and then it went away. And as I saw that, I thought, wow, this stuff really works. Sometimes you can see it more in somebody else than in yourself. Just like sometimes we can see faults more in somebody else, right? Wow, look at that selfish person. and We're just as selfish, but we don't see it. So in a similar way, you can see, wow, look at this! how this person is happy in spiritual life. And we may not see that we're also being happy in spiritual life. All we see is our struggles. You know, ah, oh, this problem, that problem, this problem, that problem. And we see others and think, wow. I hope there's a, one, uh, one person who grew up in the Hare Krishna movement. And he had, for a while he had stopped chanting Hare Krishna and he really wasn't, he wasn't doing anything really bad, but he really wasn't practicing very much anymore. So he moved into an apartment building. He got a job. He was going to school. And he has a spiritual name because he was brought up in the Hare Krishna movement. So people ask him, well, what's your name? Oh, I'm a Hare Krishna devotee. Oh, what's Hare Krishna about anyway? So he starts talking to them about Krishna consciousness, and he starts bringing them to the temple. And there was this one girl in his apartment building. He brought her to the temple. And she was so interested. She decided to start chanting. And he was talking to me and he said, I can't believe it. She came to the temple only two times and she's chanting for an hour and a half every day. And what do you think he started doing? <laughs> I saw him about a week later. He said, you know, um, I started chanting again. I said, oh, because of that girl? No, no, nothing to do with the girl. <laughs> but it was very common. Right? We may take Krishna consciousness for granted. Right? Com- uh, familiarity breeds contempt. You know, they go, oh, yes, yes, I know about Krishna. And then when you talk to people who are hearing about Krishna for the first time, they say, wow, this stuff is amazing. Right? The last time I was here, maybe some of you remember, there was that one lady here from, uh, from a country who spoke Farsi. Iran. Iran. And she was talking about how she read Bhagavad Gita and how wonderful it was. Some of you were here then? She was talking. And how much appreciation that she had. And when you hear that, immediately your own appreciation deepens. You're like, wow, it's a far out book I'm reading every day. (laughs) Isn't it? You see that people's lives become immediately transformed. say, wow, this really is amazing. And this chanting really is special. You know, I have available to me all the time. And you, you see people's whole lives becoming transformed. And of course, another reason that it increases our faith is because Krishna's happy. And when Krishna's happy, he reveals himself more to us. And it makes him very, very happy when we try to help other people to come to him. It, it shows a, a real lack of selfishness on our part. And it's a way also of being non-envious. Envy is, yes, I am a religious person, I know about Krishna, and these other people, they are karmis. 
They are dogs, hogs, camels, and asses. I am a human being. Now, envy is, I want to keep other people down. I want to maintain my position. Lack of envy is, I teach others. Lack of envy is, I want everyone else to be a better devotee than me. So Krishna is very happy when we preach. It's a way of developing a lack of envy. It's a way of developing selflessness. And that's what he's created this material world for. He's created it to to facilitate our foolish desires, but he's also created it as a way of our coming back to our senses in our real life. That's what he wants to go on here. You know, the government's very pleased when one prisoner helps rehabilitate the other prisoners. They like that very much. And the prisoner who's working to rehabilitate the other prisoners, he's likely to get paroled early also. One time someone asked Srila Prabhupada, you know, we're helping all these people go back to Godhead. Will we go too? Prabhupada says, yes. You're helping other people go, you're not going to go. So by Krishna's pleasure, by the pleasure of the Guru, by the pleasure of Krishna, then it's revealed to us in the heart, Krishna's presence. Krishna shows himself, this touch with Krishna, which is the essence of our faith. He wants to show himself. Don't we want to show ourselves to people who please us? Right? If someone does something that makes us happy, we want to spend time with them, we want to reveal ourselves to them, we want to have a relationship with them. So Krishna's like that too. And there's so many things you can do that will please him, right? You give Krishna just a little toasty leaf, you give him a little marigold, you give him an apple. He's very happy. But he says nothing makes him happier than explaining about this Krishna consciousness. So many things you can do that will make him happy. But if you want to make him really happy, you help other people become Krishna conscious. So if we want to progress quickly and we want our faith to become solidified, then engaging in some kind of preaching, engaging in some kind of sharing of Krishna consciousness is very essential. And preaching Krishna consciousness does not only mean you know, giving a class or going out and chanting on the street or giving people books. Preaching is how you live. Whether or not you'll wear tilak in public. Whether or not you'll tell people about Krishna. Will you give people prasadam? There's so many ways that you can preach Krishna consciousness. One has to just be a little thoughtful. And in each circumstance think, is there some way that I can give other people Krishna consciousness in this situation? Is there anything I can do to help other people be Krishna conscious? And say, sometimes it's just going out dressed as a devotee and acting like a lady or gentleman. So that somebody will say, oh, what a nice Hare Krishna devotee. I'm not sure if I told this story here, but we were, we were buying something in a store and one of the things we were buying was very small and it had gone to the bottom of the cart and somehow when we were going through the checkout, they didn't see it. So we paid for everything. We're going out to the car, and my husband sees this little thing, and he says, oh, goodness, we never paid for this. We, somehow it just came out with us. And it was something like 20 cents, you know. I think it was maybe 18 cents. I said, oh, the lines are very long. What should we do? I said, yeah. we decided, let's go back. We should go back and pay for it. We shouldn't take it with us. So we went back in the same line, 
we get back to the front of the line and we said this was at the bottom of the cart, you know, and we didn't want to just take it out. And the man looks at us and says, what religion are you anyway? <laughs> so that's, one can preach in so many ways, isn't it? Right? And it works the other way too, <laughs> if we're dishonest, you know, if we're scoundrels, especially in the name of Krishna consciousness. Well, you know, it's all right if I steal your money for Krishna because it's all going to Krishna. <laughs> You'll get benefit if I steal your money and give it to Krishna. So that has the opposite effect. So, so far we've looked at different kinds of advancement, right? We spoke about different ways of analyzing advancement, one in terms of faith, why we should have faith, what is faith, how we get faith, and particularly how we get faith by preaching. So I have, I'm supposed to end at 5 to 7, which gives me 5 minutes. I've talked for a very long time. My legs are hurting. I can imagine all of your legs are hurting. Any of you have any questions? Yes. Um, you mentioned how the spiritual masters are God. Uh, but sometimes people... Isn't it also dangerous to minimize the position of the spiritual master? Yeah, not that you shouldn't just think, oh, the spiritual master is just like my buddy. Now when I want to listen to him, I'll listen to him. When I don't want to, I won't. I don't want, you know. Absolutely. You shouldn't think that he's just an ordinary person. Well, look, this is true again, even in a material sense. Are you going to learn anything in college if you treat your professor like he's just one of the students? Without some respect, you can't learn anything from anybody. You can't even ask somebody for direction unless you respect that they're telling you the truth. There, there has to be some respect in order for learning to take place. It must be. And because the guru is... They're, they're the representative of God in, in a very practical sense. It's like if a policeman stops you. Now maybe the policeman who stops you lives down the street from you and you know him. But still, when he's there in his police uniform stopping you, you have to treat him as you would treat the whole government, right? I mean, you get a lot more trouble for disrespecting a policeman than for disrespecting me. Why? Because he's representing the government. You understand? The crime, the, the punishment for killing a policeman is much stronger than that for killing an ordinary citizen. Why? Because it's taken into a crime against the government. So the guru is representing God. He's there as Krishna's ambassador. Not that you think that the policeman is the whole government. <laughs> That's crazy. That's also crazy. If you think the guru has the power of God, that he can create universes and that he's in every atom and that he knows every one of your thoughts. And, yeah. Then you're going to be disappointed. And after some time, when you come to realize that he's not God, then you'll leave. You're putting something artificial. But he's representing God. He can see that, but not in the same way that God can. Krishna has been with you lifetime after lifetime after lifetime forever in your heart. 
He knows everything you've done in all of your past lives. He knows every single one of your desires. So the, the relationship with the guru isn't quite like that. But it's not, it's not necessary. It's not necessary. It doesn't have to be like that. There's also there's a, there's a symbiotic relationship between the disciple, the guru, and God. They're working together. The guru is giving an instruction and Krishna is also giving an instruction from within your heart and you're getting an instruction from the scriptures and you're seeing the example of the sadhus. It's not just one. They're all working together. It's not, it's not that... I mean, there may be some gurus who may know what you were for your past ten lifetimes, but that's not like that's a requirement. There's no in the scripture where it says to be a guru you have to you know, know somebody's past 500 lifetimes. It's not one of the qualifications listed for gurus. Perhaps a particular guru was empowered like that by Krishna. But like Madhvacharya was very strong. Once he was with some disciples, they were attacked by thieves. And Madhvacharya personally overwhelmed the thieves. He was fought with a tiger without a weapon and subdued the tiger. He was a mountain climber. He was a wrestler. He was a mountain climber. He climbed all the way up in the Himalayas. But it doesn't say in the scriptures that in order to be a guru, you have to be a mountain climber and a tiger wrestler like mm-hmm. Madhvacharya. Mm-hmm. Actually, we're going to talk about Madhvacharya. Is it tomorrow? You understand? So that, you know, particular people are empowered with particular things. Or Arjuna, you know, he could... <laughs> there was that test by his teacher, Dronacharya, where Dronacharya hung this little... Uh, it certainly wasn't plastic probably like you know wooden and stuff little fake bird up in a tree and he had all of the students shoot an arrow at the bird actually they just aimed it and then he said what did you see and they were all saying you know I saw the bird one of them thought he'd be very nice I saw your lotus feet Guru Dave I saw the bird <laughs> and then he asked Arjuna Arjuna aimed he said Arjuna what did you see he said I saw the bird what do you mean you saw the bird specifically he said well actually I just saw the eye and Arjuna could shoot with either hand. He was ambidextrous. Left-handed, right-handed. He could shoot in the dark. He hit an our target in the dark. But that's not a qualification for being a guru either. Don't go to a guru. My dear Guru Dave, can you uh, hit the eye of a bird in the tree and shoot with your left and right hand and shoot the target in the dark and I'll surrender to you? Okay. So different great personalities may have different attributes. Or some like Narada Muni, he can see past, present, and future. So they may have different <clears throat> opulences, but Arjuna couldn't see past, present, and future. Otherwise, why did he ask Krishna that question? He forgot it. Right? And Prabhupada says directly there, this is the difference between the living entity and God. And he said, even such a... It wasn't just what you say, well, Arjuna was being bewildered. No, Prabhupada says, even such a liberated soul is Arjuna. You understand? So it may be that your particular guru can walk on water. That may be. Or your particular guru can shoot left-handed in the dark and always hit the target, you know. Or that your particular guru can wrestle with tigers. That may be. Or your particular guru may know, you know, 30 languages. But none of those sort of things are in the scripture. It doesn't say, you know, all gurus have to know Arabic and Persian and Czech and Portuguese. You just have to know they have to actually be representing Krishna. 
They should be acting as a transparent via medium. Think of it as someone who takes the scriptures and, and shines a light behind them. Or like your glasses. So you're seeing me directly, isn't it? But through the medium of your glasses. So the experience of seeing me is direct. You don't feel like it's being mediated by your glasses. You're not experiencing it like that, right? So like that, transparent. That is a real qualification, Guru, that they're transparent. They make Krishna visible to you in such a way that they themselves are in one sense out of the way. You are just seeing, you're seeing Krishna through them. They bring Krishna to you. We could go over specific. I'm going to talk one day about gurus and we'll talk about qualifications and specifics. And I'm supposed to be quiet now. Thank you very much. All glory to Shri Prabhupada.